Hello, and welcome to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. Be sure to listen all the way through to the end of the episode for additional info on where to find more resources for past sermons, as well as how to watch us live each Sunday if you can't join us in person at our Columbus, Ohio location. Let's prepare to hear this week's sermon and listen for what God is saying to you and what he wants to do in your life. Once again, Jesus went out beside the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd came to him. He began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Levi was sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. Levi got up and followed him. Later, Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house. Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. They were part of the large crowd following Jesus. Some teachers of the law who were Pharisees were there. They saw Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors. So they asked his disciples, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? Jesus heard that. So he said to them, those who are healthy don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have not come to get those who think they are right with God to follow me. I have come to get sinners to follow me. Mark 2, 13 through 17. Awesome. Love having having every, oh, lots of voices up here from the pulpit. Well, there was a season of life where I was doing a lot of traveling, and I had this one experience in South America for a few months where I was very, very much alone, kind of wandering around, did some backpacking, uh, didn't, didn't have a whole lot of connections. And then a few, uh, about a year later, I ended up going to China. And I remember being very nervous getting off the plane in China because I was thinking about my time in South America being like, I don't think I can do that kind of loneliness again. It was a very humbling time. And God was really kind to me. He's really merciful to me in China. It became one of the sweetest seasons of fellowship, of community that I had ever experienced. There's one couple in particular who were kind of like, for lack of a better term, like the, the patriarch and matriarch of our, our kind of like community or Christian community, which, you know, had some relationships and house churches, a part of it. And, and very early on in my time there, when they barely knew me, they started inviting me over for dinner. They'd invite me and some other folks. So being new to the country, I could meet some people. And one thing I loved about, they were, they were masters of hosting people for dinner. Like they, they just knew how to do it really well. And one thing I loved that, that I remember to this day was that they would navigate that awkward transition from when you first arrive and you're maybe having a drink in the kitchen while they finish up cooking to the table. And you, know, you kind of mosey over to the table and like, who's sitting where? Who's claimed what seat with their drink? And you never quite know where to sit. Uh, but these folks, Scott was uh, his name, he would, he would just real smoothly instruct people. Josh, why don't you sit there? Young E, why don't you sit there? And he would just kind of tell us where to sit. And we didn't have to think about it. We could just sit down and find our seat. Those dinners were over a decade ago. And I remember it vividly because being new to a continent to have someone say, Josh, here's your seat at the table was such a kindness. And that table became a place where I felt known, could share my story, where I could learn other people's story, people who were so different, had a totally different uh, life experience growing up in China. It was such a gift. 
I tell that story because we see a similar situation in our teaching text. These, these few short verses show us one of the core concepts of the kingdom of God, the primary strategy for Jesus's mission to bring the kingdom of God to earth. And the main idea for us today is that following the king in the kingdom of God means that we have a place at God's table and we invite others to God's table. We have a place at God's table, all of us here, whoever's listening to this, and we also have the privilege of inviting other people to take their seat at God's table. The kingdom of God, uh, life with God under his rule means that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, where you're from can have a seat at God's table. And a seat around God's table is where the story ends. If you look at the book of Revelation, the, the grand story that God is telling in scripture ends with what? A wedding feast, a wedding feast of the lamb as Jesus is united with his bride, the church. And the second part is that when it comes to following Jesus, I'm gonna unpack this, so stay with me. The table, like the literal table in your house or in a restaurant can become a central place where people get a taste of God's kingdom, can begin to experience life with God under his rule. So we'll unpack our text a bit and then we'll spend some time talking about for those of us who would want to be apprentices of Jesus and follow Jesus, what we can do in response to it. So look at verse 13 and 14. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Well, two things I wanna point out from these verses, kind of in reverse order. First, what does Jesus want Levi to do? Follow him. If you've been around our series already, you know that it's something we've talked about, but this is a primary theme of Mark's gospel. And the primary thing that Mark wants us to see through reading his gospel is one, that Jesus is the king with all authority and that we are invited, we are called to follow him as our king, to be his students. The reason I get so pumped about this idea of following Jesus is because I believe it, it cuts through so much of the fluff and debates and nonsense that we see around the church, like the big C church in, 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 the, in the United States, or really, you know, Western civilization today. Who's a Christian? Who's not? Who believes what? What does it mean to be saved by faith alone? Well, one of the commentaries I read for our teaching text this morning said this about this passage. Occurring 19 times in Mark, following, the word following is a load-bearing term that describes the proper response of faith and is indeed practically synonymous with faith. Following is an act that involves risk and cost. It is something one does, not simply what one believes. I thought that was staggering. I mean, chew on it, like meditate on it yourself. Following Jesus is practi practically synonymous with faith. I think that's such a helpful way. It's a clear way to see whether or not we actually do have faith. If you're wondering, where, where do I stand? Do I have faith? We can, consider, we can consider, do I follow Jesus? Where does the fact that I follow Jesus impact my life? 
In our day and age, belief, I think, has come to mean something that we just agree with internally in our brains. Like, I, I agree, I believe that the earth is round and Jesus died for my sins. Like, those, those facts, I mentally say, yes, I, I think those are true. But here we see in the scriptures a, a way deeper understanding of what it means to believe and that, that you would trust him enough to follow him with your life, to leave what you've known in the past and to set up your life to be his apprentice, like in the actual days and weeks and months and years of your life, meaning your, your calendar looks different because you follow Jesus. And it requires a risk and a cost. Like if, if Jesus is not who he said he is, the apostle Paul says we are to be pitied above all men. If he's not the resurrected Lord and Savior, then we are to be pitied. Following Jesus, one of the perks of this concept, the narrative of following Jesus is that it, I think it eliminates that scary, soul-searching, angst angsty experience of wondering, like, am I saved or not? I mean, I prayed the prayer, but did I mean it? Do I need to pray it again? Did it count? But that's kind of like, do I believe it enough? Is belief this like mystical, only internal thing where we see that scripture, belief, true belief is going to have uh, results, experiences in our life. So instead, as we're following Jesus, even in the lowest points of our life, at the points of our biggest moral failures, at the, the times of darkest spiritual doubt, we can say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me and get up the next day and follow him. Get up the next day and be with him. Turn our eyes to who he is and what he says and keep failing forward, as they say, in our apprenticeship to Jesus. Because I would say the struggle any sense of struggle or difficulty or feeling of failure in the process of following Jesus doesn't make you less of a follower of Jesus, but instead it's one of the most profound displays or evidences that you are following Jesus, that you're willing to try and get up again, trusting in his grace, his word of grace over your life. And in my experience, nothing will make us savor grace, treasure grace more than following Jesus. It's, it, it's easy to coast through life and just you know, tell ourselves, well, I prayed the prayer when I was nine to become a Christian, and so I'm good to go. No matter what happens, no matter what, you know, I'm, I'm good to go. That's, that's cheap grace. And we should, we should question, like, what, what were those magical words I said back when I was nine? But when you step up, and do something like uh, our region ministry here, this, this discipleship program we have here in, at Carl Road, which is this really profound apprenticeship to Jesus kind of endeavor where we really seriously seek to become like him, to do what he did. Grace will become the most precious, sweetest thing to your soul. From what I hear our folks uh, going through the region program right now, which is like a, like a school year long program, uh, they're, they're going through some of the hardest steps of that program, taking honest inventory of, of, our, of, of souls and sin and past and hurts and wounds and all that stuff. And it, it is hard. It is a cost. 
I just want to say, if, if any of you are here this morning, cling tight to Jesus. You're, you're doing the work. Your father sees you pursuing life with him, and, and he's proud of you. Following Jesus will make grace so, so precious to us. I've said it before. I'll say it a, minute, a million times. Following Jesus just makes sense of life keeps us grounded in God's love. It encourages us, affirms us in our strengths to participate and also humbles us at the same time because we are just apprentices. We never become the master. We're always just apprentices learning. The second thing I wanna talk about in these first few verses is the grace of the call to follow that we see in Levi's life. This stems mostly from who Levi was. Levi uh, which most commentators believe was the Hebrew name for Matthew, uh, the guy who wrote uh, the, the first gospel of Jesus we have in our Bibles. Um, he was a tax collector sitting in a tax booth, or your translation might say poll booth, uh, because it was likely that this was a place, uh, this place where Jesus was walking along the shore and teaching was a place where people to pay, uh, forced to pay taxes as they entered Capernaum. Back in the year 4 AD, which was a couple decades before the moment we're looking at in our text. Herod the Great, uh, which was the Roman king over the, the Jewish region of Galilee, he died. And his, his whole kingdom got split up into three sub-kingdoms that were given to each of his sons, Philip, Herod, Antipas, and Archelaus. And the border between two of their territories, Antipas and Herod Philip's, was the River Jordan. As it, came, as it came south into the Sea of Galilee. And the last town you'd go, kind of a border town, was Capernaum, when you're going from Antipas' region to Philip's. I think I have a map. I don't know how clear you can see it. It was hard to find a big one. Uh, but on the left here, you have the Galilee, and then on the right with the blue, you have Philip's, uh, Philip's region. And Capernaum was right in between those, right at the top of the Sea of Galilee. And so, you know, today, if you pass... Uh, pass a border, you have to pay some kind of border fee or even a, you know, a highway will have a toll or something like that. But it was a toll to pass from one part of the old kingdom into a part of, uh, another part of the old kingdom. And so there would have been people who had grown up not having to pay this tax. And then now you have some Romans, who, a Roman who dies, splits up a kingdom, and now you, you're taxed on everything you move between regions. Like, how might Levi have experienced people paying the tax at this booth? The indignation, the, 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 the frustration. And taxes, you know, are a little bit of a bummer. Even if you're paying them to a country in which you're a voting citizen and, you know, you get roads and police and, you know, firefighter, firemen and stuff like that. But were the Jews paying taxes to their own country? They were not. Levi was a Jewish person, but he was collecting taxes for the Roman Empire. He was collecting taxes for the oppressing army. He was taking money from his neighbors and giving the money to the people oppressing his neighbors and getting rich in the process. Some scholars estimate that taxes between poll tax and property tax and all kinds of goofy stuff could have been as high as 90%. But the tax rate really was arbitrary because the tax collectors could charge 
whatever they wanted and enforce their tax rate with the entire power of the Roman military. Like at this tax rate, you'd have to imagine that families were selling land that had been part of their their family estate for generations, selling fishing boats or olive presses that that would have been the, the basis for their entire household economy in order to pay their taxes. People were becoming impoverished because of Roman taxes. Levi would have been like a Jewish person during World War II selling information about his fellow Jews to the Nazis. The New Living Translation calls tax collectors and Levi's friends scum. A little liberal of a translation, but it's an accurate sentiment to how they would have been seen by society. So to put it into our our context, imagine Jesus were to come, you know, I needed a Sunday off, so I called Jesus and, hey, we come preach here. At, at Carl Road, 5750. And uh, afterwards, he, he, you know, he parked on the north entrance by the offices. He parks his fit right next to my fit and Fred's fit because, of course, Jesus drives a Honda fit. Just kidding. Sorry, we're in the weeds. So Jesus walks out of our building uh, and, he, and he looks over the fence and sees the dollhouse, you know, the, the strip club that we have been neighbors to as a church for, you know, since I was a kid. And he sees the owner of the dollhouse walk out and he says, hey, come follow me. And the man who's made his money exploiting women says, okay. Like this is a little bit of what it would have been like for Jesus to publicly in front of others call Matthew out of the poll booth to be his apprentice, to be in his inner circle of people who were going to live with him and be with him and learn from him and carry on his ministry. But that shock and awe doesn't stop there. It gets worse. Look at what happens in verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who had followed him. So Jesus calls Levi, and then Levi goes over to Levi's house, or Jesus goes over to Levi's house to have dinner with all of his tax collector, scruffy, scum of the earth friends as the... New Living Translation would say. So to continue our metaphor, imagine that after Jesus calls the dollhouse owner to be his disciple, the man closes down the club and invites Jesus over to have dinner inside the club, inside the building with the rest of the dollhouse employees. And Jesus goes in and sits at a table and eats whatever kind of food they serve at a strip club. Is anybody else squirmy? Now, I'm not saying Jesus would do that. Like, it's not a direct, you know, uh, direct uh, translation of situations. But I share that example to try to help us feel like in our gut what the people around Jesus would have felt as he ate with Levi and his crew. What a repulsive scandal that would have been to the culture of Jesus's day not only to call Levi to be his apprentice and live with him and learn from him and do his ministry, but then to go and share a meal at home with his, at his home with his friends, which are other tax collectors. And then the term sinners would have included prostitutes, people who dealt in gambling and other lifestyles that were just untouchable, unthinkable to Torah observing Jews. These were people 
who were told by society and would have deeply believed that God wanted nothing to do with them, that they were too far gone, too dirty, too unlovable to know God at all. And these people find a place at the table with Jesus. They're there talking with Jesus and the rest of Jesus' disciples. You know, as far as we know, he's not rebuking any of them, telling them to stop all the things they're doing. Jesus is reclining at table. The Greek word that's translated, Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house is Jesus was reclining at Levi's house because that's how they ate. Jesus is relaxing in their presence, listening, fellowshipping with them, hearing their stories and telling them stories. Behold our king. And I also bring up the dollhouse because to some degree, this is the exact ministry of Scarlet Hope, this ministry that we just have begun partnership with uh, that, min- that reaches out to women in the strip clubs in our city. They literally take food into strip clubs to eat with the women who work there to show them love and that, that there's a place for them at Jesus's table. And I hope we can look at the Pharisees' response with a little bit of uh, compassion, a little bit of empathy. Like, how could they rebuke Jesus? Like, the scandal of what Jesus was doing would have been, like, on a gut level, nauseating. But look what the, the Pharisees say in verse 16. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? What is he doing? Doesn't he know what these people do? Like we've heard that he does miracles, that he teaches the scriptures, that he sees himself as a rabbi, as a man of God, that he can forgive sins. What is he doing? Jesus' answer, verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, this is a beautiful statement from Jesus. But if you're like me, if you've been around church a minute, like where's, your, your mind might go to, to, wait, who are the righteous? Wait, I thought no one was righteous. Is Jesus saying there's a category of righteous people that, that, that don't need him or something? No. You know, your, your translation might actually do the work for you at the heart of what Jesus is saying, which when he, in saying that he came not to call those who think they are righteous, but sinners. I think we know, Jesus knows, theologically, none of us are righteous apart from God. But listen to what he is saying. Listen to the positive affirmation. Who did Jesus come to call? Sinners, people who know they're sinners. This is the heart of God that we see in the person of Jesus. He moves towards the sick, literally and uh, metaphorically, the, the spiritual sick and the physical sick, sinners who need mercy and compassion. Jesus is showing the Pharisees a massive gap between who God is and how he relates to people and the ways that they are trying to be holy and the way they're relating to people in that pursuit. The Pharisees here, and we all can fall, and I'm not trying to just throw the Pharisees under the bus, they're like people who start to work out because they're getting older and they want to be able to play with their kids without pulling a muscle. But then with that initial intention, they get so caught up into fitness that they become, you know, like meatheads that like can't scratch their own 
own back or take their shirts off by themselves because they're so swollen and they're neglecting their kids to go to some kind of like weightlifting competition or, or something like that. Like it started with a good desire for health for the sake of being able to love your kids well, you know, when you're wrestling with them and it missed the whole point. The point became fitness itself. The Pharisees started off probably in a good place seeking holiness seeking to be holy as God is holy, but then they lost the point, which is to be like God. And instead, it became all about this holy performance. It's not about the holy one it's a, and how the holy one relates to people, but instead their own kind of holiness subculture. Back in chapter one, Jesus blew everyone's minds by healing who? a leper, someone you, you weren't supposed to touch or even come within you know, a certain distance. And he reaches out and touches this sick, unclean person. And, and does Jesus get unclean? Does Jesus get leprosy? No, he cleanses the sick man he be, and he becomes clean. And here we see similarly another outcast. Instead of a physical illness, it's a, 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 spiritually, a spiritual or moral untouchableness. And we see God's heart towards people like that, that he's in the business of breaking in to the lives of people like that and loving them where they're at. How? But what was Jesus's display of love and grace to Levi and his crew? Eating with them, inviting them to, even though he was a guest at Levi's house, the, the language about him reclining at table, that was the language used for the host. Like the host would kind of like recline at the head of the table and kind of, you know, oversee the meal. And it's like inferring that wherever Jesus went, he was the host. And he invites people to eat with him, to, to have their spot at a real dinner table with the God of the universe, God made flesh. So what do we do? How do we respond to this story? Well, I have two invitations. One is an invitation to contemplate and one is an invitation to action. So let's start with the, the contemplation one, which is what, who are you in the story? And you're not Jesus. Can we take that, that option off the table? Uh, some of us here today need to see the grace of King Jesus identify with Levi and his crew of sinners. We believe that deep down, if we're honest, we could, if we could get to that level of honesty and depth in our soul, that God wants nothing to do with us. Or if he does, he wants us at a distance, that we're too far gone, and that if God knew or people knew what we've done, what, 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 what I've thought, who I've hurt, then we should walk around shouting unclean. And friend, I hope you can behold the Holy One the king of kings calling sinners, those who think they have no chance of fellowship with God to be at the table with Jesus, reclining with God. Even the worst sinners have a place at the table. Look how Paul says it in Ephesians 2. This is a classic passage, but there's this hidden gem in this classic passage I wanna point out. Ephesians 2, one through seven. Let me flip there. 
As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And here's the hidden gem. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. When it says that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with himself, he seated us with himself in his presence in the heavenly realm. That is language and imagery of being seated with God at his table. In Christ, we become sons of God. We're in Christ and we have a seat at God's family table. And Jesus' ability to invite people to the table, invite sinners, the scum of the earth, to dine with him, to recline with him around the table, all flows from his ability to take on all our sin. All of the real abhorrent sin of Levi and every prostitute, gambler, pimp, extortioner at the table in our text, all the sin of all those people was not casually waved off as like, oh, don't worry about it kind of thing. All the sin was put on Jesus when he went to the cross. And the same is true of every sin that I've committed and every sin that you've committed. And Jesus took on our sin because he wanted you to be at the table with him. So will you take your place at the table? Now, the second group are the Pharisees. We're contemplating who we might be. And I, and I hope that there's enough grace and space in the gospel to consider. Do, do I identify more with the Pharisees in this story? Are you still a little mad that I would even suggest that Jesus would go and eat dinner at the dollhouse? And like, why do we hire such a young pastor with these offensive examples and all that stuff? And to, and to be honest, you know, I, I, I could easily fall into this camp. You know, what about holiness? What about avoiding temptation to sin? What about setting an example for our kids? Like there's, there, you know, there, there's legitimate concerns there, but that is not what we're getting at in the text. Don't miss the beauty of God's heart towards broken, sinful, desperate people. And the invitation, if you would identify with the, the teachers of the law, is to contemplate this passage that shows that Jesus loves people who are repulsive to you. Again, I hope we're honest enough to, to admit that there are, there are categories of people that we struggle to even look at. And, to, and then as you contemplate this, ask the Holy Spirit to see yourself in those people. See yourself in the welfare queen who hasn't worked a day in her life or the, the, the ranting Democrat or Republican or whoever at your workplace, whoever's on the opposite side of the aisle from you that you can't stand. The homosexual couple that just moved onto your street. Jesus wouldn't eat with them. He, he, he would invite them over for dinner. Jesus would see them in love 
knowing that their only hope for redemption is experiencing his loving presence. So those are, that's the contemplate part of our invitations for, for this week. As you read scripture, as you chew on, as you interact with people, you have emotions come up based on who you interact with. <clears throat> the action invitation is, I have for us is to follow Jesus to the table, like literally eat a meal at a table with someone not related to you. To help, we have a few folks in our church that have uh, volunteered to host a meal this week, like, you know, starting tomorrow or whenever. There's, a, I think, four or five homes that will have an open table, if you will, and there's a sign-up sh- sign sheet on the table, uh, the, the black table in the, um, the lobby. Uh, so this is a, it's a baby step, you know, just go and sign up, let them know you're coming and you just have to show up and eat, you know, maybe you could bring something to contribute if you feel like you have space for that. Um, we might not have enough spots for everybody uh, to actually get on the sheet. So in which case, invite someone to your home. I'd encourage you uh, to, to start, the, the step one would be to invite someone from your church family over to just share a meal uh, and if you're not able to host for whatever reason, invite someone from your church family out to eat. Uh, one of the, the core practices of being an apprentice of Jesus is this idea of table hospitality, table fellowship around time with people around the table. And I would, I would argue <clears throat> that it was Jesus's primary way of evangelism. Yes, he taught broadly. He kind of sowed seeds broadly, share, share these intriguing parables. But when you look at what Jesus said and did, he was almost all, all of the deep work was happening at the table. Jesus himself said that the son of man came to seek and save the lost. But he, and then he also said that the son of man came what? Eating and drinking. What if eating and drinking with sinners was one of his primary methods for seeking and saving them. I, I just want it to be something we begin to consider as a church family, that to be Jesus followers means we need to, like him, come eating and drinking, seeking and saving the lost by eating and drinking with them. Become the kind of people who, like Jesus, can, can be comfortable at a table with people from all over the all, all over the demographics, people older than us, younger than us, different colors than us, different beliefs than us. And so technically, you know, the action step should be to invite someone that doesn't know Jesus over. Uh, and if you feel like you have space to do that, if there's someone that's been on your heart, you're like, I need to reach out to them. They don't know Jesus. Please do that and let me know how it goes. But I think for a lot of us, time around the table is going to be a discipline or a, even a skill that we might need to cultivate or you know, post-COVID might need to dust off and relearn how to do. And so the starting with church family is kind of like a, you know, a beginner step. This invitation to follow Jesus to the table is one that we'll talk a lot about over the months, years, as we settle into this new season of our church family. Because while it might sound simple, uh, it's actually a very profound transformative thing to get used to having people around your table. It's actually like a tip of an iceberg 
There's discipleship and growth that happens in our own souls below the surface. I made this super quick. Don't look too hard at it. But as, as an image, we're like, the, if the, the above part is simply being at the table with non-Christians, eating a meal with non-Christians, if that's kind of the like above the surface part, there's all kinds of stuff that needs to happen in our lives, in our souls, in our emotional health, in order to get to where we could be the presence of Christ to lost people around our table. We might need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry. And if you need help with that, we have books on the, on the back table that you could pick up and read practical ways because it's impossible to love people in a hurry. Period. You just can't love people when you're rushed and frazzled. We might need to work through our insecurities, like inviting people over risks rejection. You know, maybe they just have little league and they can't come over. It's not about you, but because of our background and emotional stuff, we feel so deflated and rejected and like a failure. So we have to work through that. Maybe we need to address the fear that keeps us hoarding stuff so that we haven't seen the top of our dining room table since 1992 or something like that. And like, what is it about us that we can't get rid of things uh, so that we have space to invite people over to our homes? There's a lot of stuff to talk about. This is just like a iceberg image to chew on. If this feels daunting, if you're just like, your mind is spinning about what it would take to actually know a non-Christian well enough to invite them into your house, to have a table where you could sit them down or whatever. It's a process and there's space and grace. Start by whatever, this, whatever it looks like for you, eat a meal with someone you're not related to. You could start by signing up on the sheets in the lobby and we'll, we'll learn together. I wanna close with a story uh, from when uh, Camille and I first moved to Michigan. We ended up having a great connection with our realtor. We got to know her a bit during the house hunt process. She was a great realtor. And it was clear that she wasn't a Jesus follower and that she was also nervous because Camille had reached out to her and was like, my husband's moving to be the pastor of First Baptist Church. And she was like, not sure what to expect. Uh, and she had a pretty rough background, tons of broken relationships and but once we moved, one of the first things we did was invite her and her fiance over to hang out. And they came over, clearly nervous, uh, but we ended up having a great time. Uh, they, they were both pretty ready to talk about their story, their divorces and ex-spouses and hard things with kids. And they were just carrying a lot of pain and were courageous enough to share it with Camille and me. And that began a friendship. And I think for a few months, they were just waiting for, you know, the Jesus juke, the pastoral shoe to drop, where we were going to come in, come in hard and fast. Uh, but we didn't. Uh, we just kept hanging out. I'd go shoot pool with her fiance. Camille would have our realtor over for coffee in the morning. We'd have them all over for dinner <clears throat> with all their kids. Uh, and believe it or not, we actually never invited them to church. Uh, we talk about Jesus, talked what we love about him, shared our story, why we love church and all that, but we never actually made the invite. And about six months into friendship, we got a, I got a text on Saturday night uh, from her fiance being like, hey, what time does mass start at First Baptist? You see the, you see, you see the, the yeah, they had a Catholic background. So they didn't know what it was called, uh, but they, they came to our worship gathering the next day and kind of settled in to time with uh, our church family, started coming to a community group at our house, breaking bread around the table each week where we'd uh, share our lives, read the Bible, pray for each other, just kind of getting a table. They, were, they weren't married, still living together at this time, which kind of raised some eyebrows at church, but everybody was pretty 
gracious. And uh, I got to do their wedding, help them walk through that, premarital counseling and cover lots of sweet gospel truths there. And, uh, but it was clear, even at that point, you know, probably a year or so in, they, you know, Jesus was just a great teacher. He was just a cool guy. He, he wasn't their king or savior. But a couple years in, our, our friend, the realtor, was sexually assaulted, sexually assaulted at a party and had to go through this just terrible, awful court trial and it was in that suffering that she finally trusted Jesus to be her savior and start following him. It was in that pain that she saw the, the cross, the work that he did on the cross that she had heard us talk about a lot over the, over the years. It, it was enough to deal with her sin and guilt and also the sin of her attacker. And when she was baptized, uh, at, at, at that church, we wrote down testimonies and had the testimony read to the church before someone was baptized. Before she went under the water, this, this was read. I actually found it in the archives. This is one paragraph of her testimony. At 29 years old, I was raped. The life I'd built up around me didn't even have a chance to collapse. It simply vanished. There was a searing emotional pain so deep I would spend my nights silently begging to be taken out of this world completely. When I finally stopped and listened to myself, it was God I was begging. And when I stopped begging, I realized it was God who was telling me, no, you may not leave this world. Grace was shining bright in my face in the middle of the darkest dark I had ever known. Grace reminded me that despite all of my bad choices, Jesus loved me so much, he died for me. Grace said that I didn't have to feel guilt or shame or emptiness, that I wasn't carrying my pain alone, that God had met me on this earth through Jesus and through him I was healed. Of course, I was a blubbering mess. As in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I lowered her into the water. She identified with Jesus and his death and raised her out of the water as she join Jesus in his new resurrection life. Walking with our friend through that multi-year journey of going from not knowing Jesus to knowing Jesus, not having anything to do with the life of God's people in the church to, to hosting her own community group was a joy. And I just wanna point out how little I actually did. It just started by coming over to hang out. It just started by time around the table, asking questions and listening, being a person and sharing just myself, what I love about Jesus and what he's done for me. And God used these little things, simply showing up in the power of the spirit in her life to now she is seated with Christ in the heavenly places, showing the immeasurable riches of grace. This is the invitation for all of us to experience this grace and then to have the ecstatic joy of seeing others find their place at the table with Jesus. Let me pray. Oh, Father, I praise you for this passage as we behold our King and Savior, full of grace scandalous grace that blows all of our normal sensibilities. And Father, would you have mercy on us and the power of your spirit and help us see ourselves in Levi and this group of sinners 
see that we don't have to hide from shame, that we can come to you, that there's a place for us at the table. I pray, Father, the cross would be big in our minds as we consider the basis for our place at the table, that is grace, Jesus' work that provides our seat. And Father, as we grow deeper and deeper into the joy of knowing our place at your table, seated with Christ in the heavenly places, that we would, we would know the joy of inviting others to their place at the table. Holy Spirit, right now, would you bring to, bring to mind faces and names of people that are in our lives and our spheres that we can begin to be hospitable to, be the presence of Jesus to? I pray, Father, that months or years from now, we'd be seeing people uh, getting baptized in the tub behind me because folks here were courageous enough to invite people over for a meal, that you would get glory uh, as, we, as the, the riches of your grace are displayed in our lives and in, in our ministry to the lost world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for tuning in to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. We hope you found something that can be applied to your life today and into the future. You can always watch our past services or see them live on YouTube, Facebook, and our website at www.carlroadbaptist.org. That's Carl with a K-A-R-L, roadbaptist.org. If you search YouTube or Facebook, look for Carl Road Baptist Church. And don't forget to subscribe or follow us if you are watching via a service that allows that so you can stay up to date and notified when another episode is ready for you to watch or listen to. Thanks again for sharing your time with us and putting in the effort to maintain your relationship with God. Have a fantastic week and we look forward to growing alongside you in the future with the next episode of the KRBC podcast.